just by way of reminder, last week we, uh, we did a deep dive into the theme of unity and diversity in the Bible. Uh, we traced that thread from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Uh, and then we considered some of the reasons that we tend to care about this issue uh, versus the reasons that God cares about unity and diversity in the church. Uh, so anybody out there want to remind the rest of us, what were some of the reasons we said that God cares about unity and diversity in the church? Okay, so Evelyn's just noting how God, we're created in God's image, and then he uh, gives us a responsibility to go out and uh, declare his name to the nations. And one of the ways he does that is through our unity and diversity. Anything else you guys remember from last week? It's in the Trinity. Is that what you said, Dan? Yeah, so our unity and diversity displays something about the very nature and essence of God being triune and community. Good. Yeah, yeah, so uh, we saw in the book of Genesis that right there at the very beginning, uh, God created two, right, in community, unity. They were both distinct from one another, uh, different. There's a diversity there, and yet there was a unity there. Good. All right, well, this morning, some of those threads that we started to loosen up last week. And one of those threads uh, was the difference between human-built and God-built unity and diversity. Uh, We noted that the kind of unity and diversity that we're after in the local church uh, is the kind that that God builds supernaturally around Jesus, uh, not the kind that we build as a result of our own hard work or or ingenuity. Uh, So imagine that you buy a beautiful vase for your living room. Uh, You bring it home, you fill it up with water, you put a beautiful bouquet of fresh flowers in it, but a few hours later, much to your dismay, uh, the water is dripping out of the bottom of the vase and onto the floor. All right, what happened to this vase? It's got a crack in it, right? Um, It turns out that, that the vase had a crack in it, but the vendor that you bought it from Uh, He had just glazed over it so that it looked like a perfectly fine vase. But beneath the surface, there was a kind of unity that was artificial. The unity that held the vase together was really just masking a deeper problem beneath the surface. One that the vendor either couldn't fix, he didn't have the ability and the power to fix it, or he just didn't bother to fix it. Uh, I think this is, the, this is kind of like the difference between the unity and diversity that we often try to build uh, versus the kind that God builds in the church. When we try to build unity and diversity apart from God without his power at work in us, uh, we're a lot like that vendor who is simply masking over deeper problems beneath. But when God builds unity and diversity around the gospel, uh, we can be sure that we're getting Uh, the real deal. Uh, And it's that distinction between real and artificial unity in the church that we want to look at this morning. Um, So before we we jump into today's lesson, let me pray for us, 
uh, and then we'll get started. Father, we pray uh, that you would sustain us uh, in these next few moments as we, as we think about what your word says about the kind of unity and diversity you build into your people. Um, God, we pray that you would uh, give us hearts of humility, uh, that our posture before you uh, would be one of dependence and obedience and a willingness to do uh, all that your word says uh, of us and commands of us. Um, God, we pray that you would be building in us uh, a deeper awareness of our need for you uh, and uh, our need of you to, uh, to, to unify us around the gospel uh, and not the other things that would seek to divide us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to spend much of our time this morning uh, in Ephesians chapters 2, 3, and 4. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, um, Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we're going to start. Um, well, in Ephesians 2, Paul gives us, uh, in the first 10 verses, he gives us the gospel. Uh, and then in verse 11, he moves to uh, a primary implication of the gospel, uh, a unity and diversity between Jew and Gentile uh, in the church. And we saw last week that this diversity between Jew and Gentile in the Ephesian church was a really, really big deal uh, because they'd been enemies uh, with one another for centuries, theologically, culturally, politically, and ethnically. Uh, so if you, were, if you were planning a church in first century Ephesus, having these two groups as part of your core team uh, would not be the most natural strategy. The most natural strategy uh, would be to start a church of Jews over here and a church of Gentiles over there. Uh, so Jewish Christians feel free to invite all their Jewish friends uh, to church, and the Gentiles can invite their Jewish friends. And then eventually, maybe over time, after the, the two groups mature, well, then maybe we can bring those, those churches together and they can work more closely uh, as they're maturing in Christ. But that's not the blueprint that we get in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. Right? This, this church, as we saw last week, is Jew-Gentile from, from day one. Uh, and it's precisely because that diversity isn't natural. Uh, it's something that God does out of his wisdom. Uh, it's precisely because that diversity isn't natural um, that it testifies uh, to the wisdom and the power of God. And one of the things that we're going to find in the book of Ephesians this morning, uh, especially chapters 2 and 3, uh, is, that, is that man and woman, you and I, uh, we actually do very, very little work uh, in this work of reconciliation. Um, all of it, at the end of the day, is God's work. Uh, and to help us see that, I want us to do a grammar lesson. Um, so welcome to... English 101 this morning, guys. I used to be an English teacher, so this should be fun. Um, so we're going to do a little grammar lesson. I'm going to read Ephesians 2.11 all the way through 3.21. Okay, so I'm going to, depending on our time, I'm going to try, I'm going to read all those verses. I know that's a lot. And as I read, I want you, I want you to just listen for the verbs, just listen for all the verbs that you hear and make some mental notes. Okay? All right, starting in 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for anyone, everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through, the Spirit, through his Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right. So a lot of verbs in there. What were some of the verbs you heard? Remember. Who said remember? Anybody? Somebody said remember. Oh, Michelle and Brenda. What were some other verbs in there? Have been brought. Good. I was just making the observation that a lot of the verbs are past tense. 
And what is that? What's that? Why is that significant? So Frank's noting that the verbs are past tense. Something already accomplished. Right, a lot of the verbs, almost the majority of the verbs, maybe 99.9% of the verbs are descriptive, are telling us things that God has done for us. There are only two verbs, the same word, actually, in this, all of these verses we just read that are in the imperative, a command to us. Remember. Remember. It's the only verb. Verse 11 and verse 12, remember. It's the only verb that, that the only command that we get in the whole thing. So the one thing that Paul tells the Jews and Gentiles in this church to do is remember. And this is a huge task, right? Build a church out of converted Jews and Gentiles, enemies, natural-born enemies, and then just that one imperative verb. So clearly, this isn't about what you and I, it's not about what we need to accomplish in the local church. It's not about what we need to do at the end of the day. No, it's about what God has already done for us. Right? God's the one who does this principal work of reconciliation. Right? Chapter 2, verse 13, God's the one who brings us near by the blood of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14, he's, he's the one who tears down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. 2.15, God's the one who makes Jew and Gentile into one new man. 2.16, God's the one who kills the division and hostility and brings reconciliation. 2.17, God's the one who sent Christ to proclaim the good news of peace to those who were far off. And we could keep going on and on through the rest of these verses. The point is, is that God is the chief architect who's engineering the entire enterprise. Now, does this principle apply no further than that Jew-Gentile divide that's in view here in those verses that we just read? So when we quote in our, uh, our own church covenant, Ephesians 4.3, uh, that we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, should we only be thinking of the Jew-Gentile divide here in Ephesians 2.3? Of course not. Right? The principles that are here apply to any distinction in the church. In fact, we see Paul making the same application for us in Colossians 3.11. Uh, you can turn there if you want. Colossians 3.11, uh, there he's addressing a, a very different kind of division in that church, and he says, he says this there. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So again, we see Paul making the point that to be united to Christ through faith is to be united to one another in love. And that kind of supernatural unity is something that God has, has done for us in Christ. So if you haven't noticed yet, that's the main point of our, class, of our class today. Unity and diversity isn't something that we create. It's something that God has already done. It's something that God has already done. How has he done that? What are the tools that God uses? Well, first, he gives us a new gospel identity. He gives us a new gospel identity. This is a number letter C there on your handout under point number two. So he gives us a gospel identity. Uh, we talked about this last week. When God saves you, uh, 
when God saves you, who you are in Christ is now the thing that fundamentally defines you as a person. Everything else in your life becomes secondary. That's primarily what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 2 and 3 with all those you are statements. Right? You are fellow citizens. You are the household of God. You are a new humanity. You are a new temple. In Christ, we, are, we become, we are someone fundamentally different, someone fundamentally new. We're not what we once were. And second, the second thing he created, the second tool he's using, uh, implicit in this passage, but explicit elsewhere in the scriptures, um, because we have this new identity, this new gospel identity, we also now have new desires. Right? In God, uh, in Christ, God changes what we love. He changes what we love. We're no longer fundamentally self-oriented creatures. So your forgiveness from Christ creates in you a love for the one who forgives you. That's what we see in Luke 7:47. And we love him in part by loving others who love him, by loving his children, uh, even those we'd otherwise see as very difficult to love. So John 13:34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So it's not merely that becoming a Christian then obligates you to love others, though I think it does, uh, but now you actually want to love others. You want to love others. And these two things that God creates in us, this gospel identity and these gospel desires, these gospel, this kind of gospel love, uh, they generate not just unity in the church, but also diversity. So they generate diversity because Christians are attracted, uh, a diverse range of Christians, all Christians are attracted to the preaching of the gospel, uh, even if the ways that uh, their differences with a church may put them in the minority in that church. So I can't tell you the diversity of church members that I've sat with over my years uh, here as a, as a member and then on staff and, and now as an elder, I can't tell you the diversity of church members that I've sat with who all give me the same reason for why they decide, decided to join UBC. Uh, across the board, what attracts them to our church is the preaching of the word. It's the preaching of the word. Why? Because God's people gravitate to God's word, and they want to go where the gospel is clearly taught and seen. Right? It's God's word that God's people move towards. Of course, living this out takes some hard work. It takes hard work on our part. We're going to talk more about that later, uh, but, but we need to be careful not to just immediately jump to our responsibility and forget the amazing truth that unity and diversity are God's doing. God is, God is the one who's behind it all. Any questions on that before we move on? Again, we're going to talk a lot about our role in that here in a second. But up front, I just want you to see that it's God's work first and foremost. All right, moving on. Point number three. So again, it's not your job to create unity. God's already done that. But how, how does that change things? 
How does that change things in us when I'm feeling annoyed or angry or offended or frustrated because of another church member? Right? We've all found ourselves in that situation. Well, two things I think that, that the fact that uh, this is God's work ought to produce in us. Two things I think it produces in us, hope and perseverance. Hope and perseverance. So look there again at Ephesians 3.13. Ephesians 3.13. Just keep, keep your finger on Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. So after God has described who we are in Christ, we're not strangers but family, and after he's described the glory of this unity, uh, it's turning heads even in the spiritual realm because of what happens in this little church in Ephesus. Uh, look at what Paul says in 3.13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So th- this God-honoring unity between Jew and Gentile through the gospel This, that unity is the fruit of Paul's suffering, and it's to the church's glory. And because of that, they're told not to lose heart. So the fact that God has created unity, it it turns our our quest to live out that unity uh, in the church into a a quest of guaranteed discovery. We're guaranteed uh, the, the destination, so to speak. So I really enjoy hiking. Uh, and I'm one of those really annoying hikers that enjoys the whole process of hiking, like the actual hike itself. I'm not just into the end, the destination, the, the great view the, the, that drives me, uh, but I just love the whole process. And I enjoy the process because I'm driven uh, by the optimism of what we're guaranteed to find ar- around each new corner around each new bend in the trail, and certainly about what we're going to find at the end of the hike. Um, And that the guarantee of that joy of discovery is what keeps me going, uh, gives me hope, and makes me want to bring others along and push them along, uh, even when they're going against their will. You can just ask my wife and my kids about that. Um, But for me, pursuing unity in the church is a lot like that hike. It may be hard, It may be frustrating. Uh, It may take a long time. But you know what you're going to find along the way and what's waiting for you at the end of the thing. Uh, You know in that particularly challenging friendship uh, that there's unity uh, because God's built it that way. It's just baked into the thing. And so you can have hope to persevere in love. And our world, of course, is telling us the same thing about, uh, about our common humanity. Uh, that if we can just realize that we're fundamentally all the same, that we all bleed the same, uh, then surely we can live as one. Uh, and sometimes that's true. Right? Oftentimes, for the sake of humanity, I really hope that's true. But the Bible doesn't promise us that our common humanity is sufficient for unity. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's just not, an, it's not enough um, because the Bible teaches us that, that the innate unity of humanity that we share is no match for the power of sin, uh, which is why we need a Savior. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, such pessimism has no place in the church because here, only in the church is our sin 
uh, outmatched by the gospel and our pessimism by God's promise. So that brother or sister who, who really just drives you up the wall, uh, who makes you so angry, uh, or who you don't see eye to eye with politically, um, God has given unity with them in the gospel. And you will find it if you don't give up. Hope and perseverance. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of the Spirit at work within us. That's the hope of Ephesians 3.20. Remember that Jew-Gentile divide. That should fuel you with a lot of hope and perseverance here at UBC. So question for you guys. What are some ways uh, in which the hope of God-built unity uh, changes how you relate to others in the church? What are some ways in which that hope of God-built unity changes how you relate to others in this church? I'd love to hear from one or two of you. Yeah, so Dan's just noting how it, it helps him bear with the small things, the peccadillos, using one of my favorite words right there, Dan. Uh, it's those small things that really kind of grate at us, those preferences we have. Uh, that's good. Others? Yeah, Evelyn? Yeah, so Evelyn's just noting the, the, how it produces a, a prayerfulness in her own heart uh, for others. It's good. Yeah, so Joy's just noting how the Holy Spirit is gracious to remind her that they're bo- you're both in the gospel. The person that she's disagreeing with or annoying her or whatever it is, uh, they're in the gospel just as much as, as she is. That's good. Yeah. And so I can look at them, but I mean, not, not, not the annoyance, 
Yeah. So Chris is just noting how uh, the fact that God is working uh, to sanctify both parties motivates him and helps him uh, have hope and perseverance in those difficult situations too. That's good stuff, guys. We're going to talk more about that uh, in the weeks to come. All right, so moving on to point four. Um, when God built unity and diversity go missing. Okay, so we've seen that God builds our unity and diversity around the gospel, but why? What, what will we lose if we try to build unity and diversity around something else? Well, I think, I think Ephesians gives us two things. Uh, first thing we lose is a confirmation of the gospel. Confirmation of the gospel. This is what we already saw in Ephesians 3.10. What is it that, the, that makes the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places marvel at the wisdom of God that proves this power of the gospel? It's that Christian unity between Jew and Gentile. Their unity can't be explained by anything except the gospel at work in their lives. So their unity then confirms the gospel as that thing around which God has unified them. Uh, we see this confirmation of the gospel taking place uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, primarily through the different means that God uses to validate the power of the gospel. So if you think back to the book of Acts, uh, in nearly every place where the gospel is preached, uh, it's accompanied by what Luke will call signs and wonders, or wonders and signs, um, these miraculous healings, speaking in tongues, uh, these wonders that confirm the truth of the message of the gospel. But in every case, when Luke's narrative revisits those places, uh, we hear of no more wonders and signs. Instead, Luke focuses on the strengthening of the church. Uh, and the book of Acts doesn't really explain that pattern for us, uh, but I don't think it's too far of a leap to see of a, connect, a connection. Um, miraculous healings uh, and such... Those were God's temporary confirmation of the gospel, but they were only temporary uh, until his normal means of confirmation was up and running. Unity, the unity and the love of the local church. So remember what Jesus prays in John 17, 23, that they may be one even as we are one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So in other words, it's not signs and wonders that will finally be validating the gospel in the eyes of the world. Uh, it's our unity and love for one another that's going to do that. God uses those temporary means to establish his church in the early days, uh, but they were eventually supposed to give way to the ordinary means of Christian love, which God uh, uses to strengthen his church for the long haul. But that confirmation of the gospel, it, it's not the only thing that depends on unity the unity in our diversity. Second thing, the, preser we, the preservation of the gospel. The preservation of the gospel. So look at, look at Ephesians 4.4. Ephesians 4.4. 4. So having spent a chapter and a half basically describing uh, how both Jew and Gentile are together in the church, Paul now calls them one body. One body. Elsewhere in Scripture, like, uh, like Romans 12, Paul uses the body of Christ, that body of Christ analogy, uh, to describe the importance of different gifts in the church. But here, he uses it not about gifts, but about backgrounds. One body composed of Jews and Gentiles. 
So how does, how does this preserve the gospel? We'll skip down to chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. This body attains to the unity of the faith and maturity. Why? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And how are we supposed to do that? Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in him in every way, and to him who is the head, and to Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so how exactly does a church protect the gospel? What's, what's, the, what's a part of the blueprint that God gives us in these verses? Is it mainly having a good statement of faith or solid preaching? Well, those things are helpful and even necessary, and thankfully we have both here at UBC. But that's not what Paul points to in these verses. What does Paul point to? Being tossed to and fro by false doctrine is contrasted with doing what? What's he contrast that with? Verse 15, what's he say? Speaking the truth in love. All right, so he's contrasting being tossed to and fro by false doctrine with speaking the truth and love to one another, which means that we hold on to the gospel through the thousands of different little conversations that happen between church members each week. It's through conversation, through distinctly, explicitly Christian conversation. So have you ever noticed how different your conversations are with members of this church uh, versus the kinds you have with non-Christian friends or family members, uh, or even those who profess Christ but are members of a different church than UBC, for example. I'm struck by this every time that I go home uh, to visit non-Christian friends or family members. Um, it's not that I don't enjoy those conversations with those friends or family members, it's just that they don't encourage me or sustain me the same way uh, in the, way, in the way that a conversation with one of you encourages or st- sustains me, even if I don't know one of you uh, very well. Uh, but just a simple, ordinary conversation between another Christian in my church who shares the same understanding of the gospel, who's sitting under the same preached word as I am, uh, has a way of strengthening my faith in ways that I can't even begin to rightly quantify. Every single interaction that we have with one another, no matter how small uh, and insignificant it may seem at the time, is an opportunity for us to influence one another uh, and for the gospel to be conveyed, clarified, and applied to our lives. And just think about how the Lord uses those millions of tiny, little conversations over the course of our Christian life to strengthen and to build our hope in Christ and to protect and preserve the gospel. At the most, at the most grainy level, uh, it's through our conversations with one another that we hold on to the gospel. So, brother and sister, never ever underestimate, never ever underestimate or overlook the power of, the, uh, of those ordinary, brief, explicitly Christian conversations that you and I have 
with one another after a service on Sunday mornings or in life group or in discipling relationships throughout the week or through the text message that you send or phone call that you make. Um, God is using those uh, to fortify our faith and to, to hold on to the gospel. One final note on these two things. Uh, so both preservation of the gospel and confirmation of the gospel are really just the stuff of the Great Commission, aren't they? They're really just the stuff of the Great Commission. So think about what Jesus commands the disciples in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. And we're to do that as the world sees us love one another, thus confirming the gospel in a John 17, 23 sense, which we read earlier. And then, and then we're to, to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. In other words, we're to preserve the gospel through our words with one another. So this unity and diversity around the gospel, it not only confirms and protects the gospel, it also promotes and advances it. This is why unity in the church must be God-built. Because if our unity and diversity stem from anything else, it won't accomplish what we've been talking about. It won't accomplish God's purposes for that unity and diversity. It won't actually promote or advance the gospel, and it won't bring glory to God. All right, number, uh, last point there on your handout, number five, uh, what's our role? What's our role? So we've been talking a lot about God's work in our unity and diversity, but what role do we play? Do we just sit back and do nothing? A few verses after Paul established that it's God alone who unites Jew and Gentile in the Ephesian church, he says in, uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, uh, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the word eager there, uh, it carries with it the idea uh, of zeal or diligence and effort. So another way to translate this verse is to make every effort to keep the unity. If you're reading from the NIV, that's actually the way that it, uh, the NIV translates that verse. So like, like so many of Paul's letters, the first half of Ephesians says, hey, Christian, this is who you are in Christ now. You're, you're not only sinners made alive. Uh, you're not only strangers who've been made one. And then the second half of the book turns that and says, okay, since this is who you are, now, therefore, go and live as who you are in Christ. So it's this indicative sense followed by this imperative. You're this now, as a result, go and be this. And we see this, we see this, kind, of, uh, this kind of seeming paradox all throughout the scriptures. So 1 Corinthians 3.6, speaking about the church, Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, great. Awesome. Guess what? God's going to sanctify us. All right? Pretty easy. Easy peasy, right? We just get to sit back and do nothing. Not so. 
1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Oh, okay. So it does take some work. Not that easy. Uh, we all know the effort that 1 Thessalonians 4.4 4 takes. So the Christian life is inherently paradoxical. Paradoxical. It's one of resting and one of working. It's one of resting and working. But when God creates something within us, he's glorified. He's glorified as we fight to nurture what he's created in us. He gives us unity in Christ, and it takes effort to maintain it. It takes effort to maintain it. But as we saw earlier, we can have hope and perseverance in that effort. Because God will accomplish what he's started in us. He will accomplish what he's created in us. So let me just leave you with a few basic ways that, that you and I can do this practically uh, right now in the church. One, we need to just stop getting in the way. We need to just stop getting in the way. Sadly, we sometimes get in the way of this unity that God has built. So, for example, we, we might try to segment uh, along lines of similarity uh, in an attempt to build community. So a singles group for singles, a moms of preschoolers group, a contemporary or a traditional service, uh, or entire churches for young professionals, bikers, or artists, like the one Brad told us, he and Aaron were a part of in California, apparently, when they lived there. Um, we, we, we can even do this when uh, we pick a church or a small group based primarily on how comfortable we feel in that group or in that church, which often just translates into, are most of the people in this room like me? They make me feel the most comfortable. But when we do this, we're not promoting the kind of supernatural unity that God has, has baked into his body. Instead, we're trying to build unity on the natural things that you and I already share in common instead of that supernatural gospel that truly, really, actually unites God's people. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have ministries directed at particular segments of the congregation. They have a time and a place. Uh, we even have some of those here at UBC. Uh, but what, I am, what I'm saying is that they shouldn't take precedence or emphasis over the way God intends to build unity in his church. Because God, because God has made us one church with many different parts, one church with many different parts, and we hinder that supernatural unity when we, when we amputate those parts from one another. So we've got to be careful. We don't want to get in the way. But we need to do more than simply just kind of stop doing unhelpful things. Uh, we also need to be proactive in cultivating this unity and diversity. So like Paul's image of a farmer, we need to cultivate. We need to farm. We need to work to guard it, to nurture it, to sacrifice for it. Um, we're going to take several more weeks uh, to, to flesh this out, but I just want to introduce you to two main categories of what this looks like. Um, we need to spend time growing in, one, our understanding of our new identity in Christ, 
our new identity in Christ and in Christ and on our understanding of, of, uh, of Christ's love for us. This is exactly where Paul goes in Ephesians 4.1. So in Ephesians 4.1, he urges uh, the Jews and Gentiles in the church of Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he reminds us who we are in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, We're one body from one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. We're now defined by our new birth in Christ. And the more that we're growing in our understanding of that identity, the more and more we will walk in line with who we really are. And the same thing happens. Same thing happens with growing in our understanding of Christ's love for us. That's where Paul goes at the end of chapter 3, of Ephesians chapter 3. So what's his prayer there in verse 18 of chapter 3? What's his prayer for this Jew-Gentile congregation? That they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So as you grow in your understanding of Christ's love for you, the more you will be growing in your love for others. Uh, we're going we're gonna to spend uh, a lot of time over the next few weeks thinking uh, a lot about these two things in particular and this point in particular, but just want to introduce that concept to you now. Spend time uh, growing in your understanding of your identity in Christ and, God, and Christ's love for you. All right, third thing, third thing, we need to agree to agree in the Lord. We need to agree to agree in the Lord. So flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to do a little test case here of this in action in the church. Sorry, Philippians. Philippians 4. Look at the body of Christ helping me out right there. All right, so Philippians 4, chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, So here we find a situation where two women in the church at Philippi are engaged in some kind of disagreement. Uh, And the Apostle Paul takes a few lines to address these women directly. Uh, And these are are really important verses at the end of a really important book, and yet they're kind of those verses that you and I have a tendency to just kind of skip over and think, like, I don't know what in the world this has to do with me today. Uh, But I think there's a lot in there. So here's here's what uh, Paul says, Philippians 4, chapter 2, verse 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, so what do these seemingly insignificant two verses in the last chapter of Philippians teach us about unity in the church and our role? Well, a couple of things that we see. One, we don't know the specifics, but whatever the situation, it was serious. Whatever the divide, 
It was a serious matter. And we know this because Paul's in prison writing this letter. And so word about this disagreement had made it all the way to him in his jail cell in Rome. And he mentions these two women by name. He mentions these two, name, these two women by name. And then Paul tells a third party to get involved. So the beef between these two, these two ladies, these two sisters, was so serious that a mediator needed to get involved. That's who this true companion is that Paul, uh, Paul entreats in verse 3. So it was serious. Secondly, neither a shared faith in Christ, nor the fact that these two women were doing ministry together prevented conflict. So neither a shared faith in Christ nor the fact that these women were doing ministry together prevented conflict. So it's clear that both of these women are sisters in Christ, that they both shared and believed the same gospel. That's why Paul tells them to agree in the Lord. Um, but that didn't mean that unity was always going to be automatic between them. So disagreement about tertiary things are going to happen. Right? We can expect those. And knowing this should keep us from automatically kind of just dismissing fellow believers who may disagree with us on things that are less than gospel issues, on things that are, le- are less than of first importance. Thinking of 1 Corinthians 15. But notice how Paul handles this situation. This is, this is so important. He doesn't say, hey, Euodia, why did you say that to Syntyche? Or Syntyche, why, why did you say that to Euodia? In fact, he doesn't address the actual issue at all. Right? Instead, he addresses the two sisters directly urging them to put aside their differences and to agree in the Lord. And the phrase translated there, agree in the Lord, um, they're the same, the same words found that in, in Philippians 2, 2 that Paul, uh, Paul wrote earlier, where he says, being of the same mind, or verse 2, 5 of Philippians, have this mind among yourselves. So I think, what, I think what we're seeing in Philippians 4 is Paul taking Philippians 2, 1 to 5 and applying it to a particular situation in the church. So flip over to Philippians 2, 1 to 5. <clears throat> so kind of in a general sense, here's what Paul says, and then he's going to take these verses and apply it to what we see in 4 two to three. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, agree in the Lord, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he's just going to go on to unpack all of the glorious ways that Christ did exactly what he just told the church to do in 2, 1 to 5. So Paul is teaching us right here, uh, and 
he's, he's teaching these two sisters in the Lord in, in uh, Philippians 4 that what's more important to God is the posture of our hearts when we disagree with one another and not the issue of disagreement itself. God cares more about the posture of our hearts when we disagree than he does the issue of disagreement itself. Because no matter what the issue was between these two ladies, if these, if these two women were agreeing in the Lord and they were applying Philippians 2, then the issue would have been resolved immediately. The issue would have been resolved immediately. So what is this disagreement between these two sisters? What's it teach us about the role that we play in unity and diversity and that unity and diversity that God builds into the church? What are we supposed to do with it? I think we commit ourselves to labor, to develop a spirit-cultivated affection and sympathy for the other. We labor to develop a spirit-cultivated affection and sympathy for the other. This is basically a summary sentence of all that we've been talking about this morning. Summary sentence of everything we've been talking about. We need to labor because this doesn't come easy or natural to us. It doesn't come easy or natural to us. We gravitate towards those who aren't most like us, so it takes effort for us to move and love towards people who are outside of our natural spheres, people that we disagree with, people who annoy us, people who have different preferences than us. And this is something that we can't do on our own. We need the Spirit's help. God's the one who must accomplish this labor in and through us. So the Holy Spirit must cultivate this posture of heart within us. This is what we talked about earlier uh, in the lesson. And what's this posture of heart that he's cultivating in us? Well, to use the language of Philippians 2.1, it's one of affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy for one another. We have to grow in our love for and our understanding of one another which means that we need to be slower to speak and make accusations against one another and a lot quicker to ask questions and listen to one another. A lot quicker to ask questions and listen to one another. We're gonna talk a lot more about this in future weeks. Final word in that, that, uh, in that point there, in that summary sentence is the word other, the word other. So other could mean a number of different things. It could mean other ethnically. It could mean other socioeconomically, other culturally, other politically, other in age bracket, uh, other in stage of life, or any of the other categories of diversity that we, we introduced last week. When we pursue the other in love, the person who's not like us, the person who's who's not easy for us to, uh, to gravitate towards, what, we, what we're going to find is that we have a, a lot more in common and everything that we do have in common in Christ is far greater and far more glorious than anything that would separate us. But what we have in common with one another and with the other who, uh, who may be different than us uh, is far greater and more glorious than anything that would divide us. Did you notice how Paul reminded, what, notice what Paul reminded these two women about uh, that unites them? 
Look back at 4.3. There's something that they both share in common. Where are their names written? In the book of life. All right, so their names are in the book of life. So Paul reminds them that despite whatever's causing their disagreement, whatever's causing their disagreement here and now on earth in the local church, they're going to be spending eternity together. They're going to be spending eternity together. And there, you and I, these two sisters in Christ, they won't rally around the same political candidate or the same age bracket or the same stage of life or the same ethnicity or the same gender or, or the same culture, whatever other category we want of diversity. They're going to rally around the same Savior, Jesus Christ. They will agree in the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. So despite all of our differences, we all share in that same heavenly Father, the same Savior, the same Spirit, the same faith, the same hope, the same promises, and the same destiny. Right? That's the kind of unity and diversity that God's building in his people here and now and will have in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the weeks ahead. Any questions as we, as we shut it down this morning? Any questions or comments? Yeah, Evelyn? Tell us story about Do I have to get real personal, use names? Uh, Evelyn's asking me to personally share a story about how this has played out in my own life. I don't know, Stacy. Can you uh, can you think of a time I? Do what? I'm totally blanking. You put me on the spot. I'm sure if I if I, do what. D? Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> he's not here, so. Uh, yeah, there was a brother at Third Avenue, at the church that we were at in Louisville. It's funny, I was actually thinking of him too, but I didn't know if, yeah. Um, yeah, like on paper, we'll call, we'll call him Doug. Uh, just, yeah, we had nothing in common. No, like, he's not the kind, he was awkward. I'm awkward too, but he was like at another level. Uh, and you put our awkwardness together and it, we just kind of like fumbled through life for three years. But, uh, but in God's providence, he put us in the same life group together. Uh, and just over time, the Lord used this brother and his peccadillos and my peccadillos to just deepen my love and affection for him. Uh, and that sympathy and affection part uh, that may not come as most easy to me. I think the Lord used those years with this brother to really just help me learn a whole lot more about him, uh, a whole lot more about his trials in life uh, and ways I could care for him and love him. Uh, and I just, yeah, it wasn't easy at times, uh, but took a lot of patience and 
trial by error with him. Uh, but I think, I think that's one that does come to mind. Yeah, yeah Dan. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, so Dan's asking, like, what are just some practical ways that you are, you can be balanced when you're speaking the truth in love? We don't want to just err on the side of always encouraging and, and kind of puffing up, but the scripture does call us to rebuke where necessary to correct. So you think of Second, Second Timothy 3, uh, 16, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I think speaking the truth in love, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come on multiple different rails. Uh, and that's where you, as, we, as each of us mature in Christ, and we're having those kinds of conversations, and we're growing in our own understanding of our identity in Christ and, our, and, our, and Christ's love for us, we're going to be able to hear and discern in those moments what that brother or sister needs when we're having those conversations. So if, you know, if somebody's just really down on themselves and feeling shame and guilt over sin and just wondering, like, am I even, am I even, a, am I even a, your brother or sister in Christ? Like, I, I'm just struggling with my assurance of salvation. That's where I think there are times where you can kind of, you've got to speak the truth and love to them uh, and help them discern and understand and remind them the promises of God. And the word's going to sting there at time, but it also may encourage and build them up. Uh, or if a brother or sister is just caught in sin and blind, uh, you're going to have to bring kind of the, the arrow of scripture to their heart and the gospel to penetrate and kind of open up their eyes and kind of like those smelling salts for boxers, you know, who kind of come like that's what this this the word should be doing that for a believer. And so, um, I think just remembering remembering what scripture, what we have, um, what we're called to say to one another, God's word um, is what we have, uh, and just being willing to bring that to bear in whatever way or situation is necessary. It's one of the things we got to we got to keep in mind. All right, I'm going to pray for us, guys, and then uh, we'll have to service. Father, we praise you and thank you that you've given us your word, uh, that, uh, that it, it builds us up corporately when we gather as a, as a people, and that it builds us up even individually when we're just speaking with one another throughout the week. And so we pray that our conversations would be salted with your word, that they would uh, revolve around your gospel, uh, that we would be built up and preserved uh, by them and that you would strengthen our unity uh, in them. And God, we pray that, uh, that as we go now to sit under your word, that it would do that work of, uh, of raising the dead to life, of encouraging and edifying uh, your people and unifying us uh, around that Savior uh, who unites us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.